Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here, and today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Park. Dr. Park is a former surgeon and author of Amazon best-selling book, Sleep Interrupted. A physician reveals the number one reason why so many of us are sick and tired. For the past 13 years, he's worked in private practice and nine of those in academia. He's helped thousands of men and women breathe better, sleep better, and as a result, live more fulfilling lives. He's got a passion and mission to empower people to overcome their sleep-related breathing problems, which most people don't actually realize is the main reason for their common medical ailments. In 2021, he left the field of medicine to focus all his energy on educating the general public about everything I've just mentioned through his website, drstephenpark.com. More than that, he practiced integrative medicine and surgery with a firm belief that other models of health and disease can complement traditional Western medicine. He's a firm believer in the fact that one's got to treat the whole person first, including addressing diet, lifestyle, stress, emotional states, rather than focusing simply on one symptom or area of the body. Naturally, a conversation like this can take so many different directions, and Dr. Park and I have agreed to do another round on the podcast because we finished it realizing that, man, we're just scratching the surface. But with that said, today we do dig into some really interesting topics, including sinus problems and sleep apnea and how they're interconnected. We speak about modern lifestyle factors like nutrition, jaw development, exposure to toxins and how they can contribute to sleep issues. We speak about the benefit of sunlight. We speak about using nasal strips and addressing allergies to improve nasal breathing. We talk about helpful patterns and habits that we can develop to improve our sleep quality and overall sense of not only being healthier, but feeling healthier and more alert. We talk about how to minimize exposure to toxins and the benefit that that can have on our sleep, as well as a whole heap more. This is a really eye-opening conversation. I love the conversation with Dr. Park. Uh, is a great guy to speak to. I really hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. So let me introduce, for the very first time on the show, Dr. Stephen Park. So what are you going to tell us, tough guy? My usual, zero, nothing. Yeah, I was just saying, so exciting to have the opportunity to sit down with you. Uh, the last few months on this show, there's been a real theme of health in general, and I've started to understand there's a real interest in our audience amongst health, fitness, well-being, and small things that you can do and the big things that you can do in order to improve health, benefit health, or just feel better as you go throughout your day. And I mean, the theme that we're going to tap into today is a really interesting one to me because I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old at my house. The idea of sleep and time and energy is a, uh, <laughs> it seems like a bit of a foreign concept. But before we get into all that, I thought it might be nice for you to tell the audience a little bit about yourself who you are, what it is that you do, and um, it, why it is that you've, uh, or how it is that you found your way into the scene that you're in. Yeah. Um, Stephen Park, I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, also a sleep medicine doctor. And I've been doing this for 23 years. And I started off as a general ENT doctor practicing in Midtown Manhattan. And I started to see a lot of patients who had sinus problems. And the interesting thing was that almost every one of the people who had sinus problems who needed surgery snored and had sleep apnea. So that led me into this, this um, rabbit hole <laughs> where the sleep apnea is associated with acid reflux, acid reflux, with sinusitis, and, and everything is all connected. And so um, it just kind of opened my eyes as to how 
with health and wellness is not just the sinuses and ears and snoring and sleep apnea, but everything, uh, depression, anxiety, pregnancy problems, depression, um, autoimmune diseases, dementia, it's, it's all connected. And so it's been a long journey and still I'm still learning as I'm going along. And so more recently, I've kind of learned to integrate everything else, not just, just to go beyond ENT medical issues, to go way beyond the nutrition, holistic um, issues, uh, your environment, toxin removal. And so that's, that's where, I'm, where I am right now. Yeah, it's, uh, I haven't even told you this, but it's an interesting conversation to me because I've actually had uh, two sinus surgeries myself in, in my past. Uh, the mm -hmm. last one was around 2014, so we're mm -hmm. going back a, a little while now. But in terms of uh, interrupted sleep, I was a middle distance runner or a long distance runner for quite a lot of time. And the sinus problems was a big part of the reason that I decided to leave the distance running scene mm -hmm. alone for a little while because I, I was constantly on the brink of being sick. And the way I explain it to people is whenever, uh, whenever I woke up, when I, I always woke up feeling as though I was about to get a flu, felt very congested, very heavy in my head. Uh, very blocked through through sort of my sinuses and, and the back of my eyes. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, as a result, my athletic performance was severely hampered. But I went in, I had a number of, uh, I had two surgeries. But throughout that whole period, the sleep was the one thing that I knew was so interrupted. And, and, and maybe mm -hmm. we could speak to this a little bit more. But one of the things that I, I often experience was really bad night sweats so it wasn't an anxiety thing i was i was very calm i was very relaxed but i would wake up in like a, a puddle of sweat and it was like my body was just having trouble regulating temperature mm -hmm. and i often woke up just feeling more exhausted than what i went to bed and uh, long story short was it turned out i had an allergy to dairy and uh, the the dairy was causing some inflammation had mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if i said had a number of polyps removed on yep. both occasions mm -hmm. but once i cut out the dairy uh, 2014 the problem pretty much disappeared i mean i'd be interested i still struggle a little with night sweats from time to time mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem to be temperature related sure. but is that a common experience for people oh, who are actually going through yeah yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that um early in my practice i actually noticed a lot of uh young thin healthy looking men having night sweats like you and what I realized was that, and this is actually, this came across after I read a book by Dr. Um, Sapolsky, um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And he talks about the stress response and how when you're under stress, from, let's say you're being chased by a tiger or you're in an accident or you're fighting, your body activates a sympathetic nervous system, right? That's your fight or flight response. And then when you're sleeping or digesting, when you relax, that's your parasympathetic system um, kicking in. But when your body's under stress, it's going to create this series of consequences, like your blood pressure goes up, um, all the blood gets diverted away from your gut, your hand, your skin, your extremities, certain parts of your brain, so that you're ready to fight or run. And one of the other things that happens is that um, the sympathetic nervous system activates your sweat glands. Hmm. And so, well, so now we saw, we see night sweats a lot in menopausal women, you know, during menopause. That's very common. And what happens is when you stop breathing for various reasons, we'll talk about why people stop breathing later. But when you stop breathing and wake up, you create this stress response, this massive stress response where your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, and you sweat. But why is it happening in young, thin men? And the reason is that you stop breathing. 
Huh. And now it doesn't have to be sleep apnea. And th- this is the main point of my book, Sleep Interrupted, where yes, you have sleep apnea patients and that's pretty well documented. And it, there's a lot more awareness about that. But you can be a young, thin man or woman who doesn't snore, who can be very healthy and still stop breathing 20, 30 times an hour. But the problem is that that threshold where you measure an apnea, we define what an apnea is, is the 10 seconds or longer threshold. So if you stop breathing 25 times an hour for nine seconds each, you don't have sleep apnea, but you have the consequences of interrupted sleep. Yeah. And so what's going on that's causing us to stop breathing throughout that time? Because this is a subject I've, I've become fascinated in. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're familiar with James Nestor, the author yes, of the of book course. Breath. Yeah. Um, I had him on the podcast a little mm-hmm. while ago, and it was interesting talking to him because one of the takeaways and one of the things that I'd been focused on and thinking about, because throughout his book he speaks about the sinus structure and how I think the example he gives is it's very similar to I'm not sure if he says in substance or it's just an analogy, but he's explaining how when it's worked out, it can strengthen, it can expand, it can open. And he gives the example of like a strengthening abdomen, abdomen, like you can work out your abs with the intention of strengthening it. Um, and you're going to lose any of that flab. You're going to lose any of that, um, you know, sort of floppiness that's there. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about the sinuses in that way. And he said that one of the best ways for you to actually strengthen it is just through a focused nose breathing routine and part of that was through mouth taping yep. when you go to sleep so i do that on a regular basis yep. almost nightly but i i often wake up still despite the fact i've been doing it probably on and off for maybe three years mm-hmm. i still wake up from time to time going oh my gosh i have lost my breath and i'll quickly peel off the tape mm-hmm. so i say all that to say despite this focus that i've had on you know the nose breathing and awareness of it trying mm-hmm. to develop my health when I go to sleep, this is obviously still an issue. So, so like you've mentioned the stress, but what's going on that's actually causing the um, the pause in breathing? Okay, so let me go back a little bit here, and this is again I, I covered this in my book in a lot more detail. But yeah. fundamentally, my the basic premise of my book is that all modern humans, no matter where you are, especially in the Westernized countries, have shrinking faces, yeah. and the reason is that because we switched over to eating softer foods, processed foods, highly refined foods, a uh, lot less pure um, breastfeeding. So breast milk from a mother's nipple and not from bottom, um, you know, pump milk. Yeah. Um, and also uh, chronic nasal congestion due to allergies, for example, that causes your face to shrink. And also nutritional deficiencies and also toxins, chemicals. I can list probably four or five diff- common toxins that everyone's exposed to that prevents proper jaw development. So you have a lot of these combination of factors that pre- causes our faces to, to not expand properly. So if you look at um, people from 100 years ago, if you look at these old photographs, they had these wide jaws. They look like aliens. <laughs> and now all modern humans have these triangular long faces, right? Like you, you and I have these long faces. That's the modern face. So when the, what happens is the, the jaws don't widen. And as a result, you get this resultant high arch palate. The hard palate never drops properly. So if it drops, the, the jaws widen and you get all your teeth coming in straighter. And that's why everyone needs braces now. Now, they've even said, the dentists have said that even 100 years ago, most people did need their wisdom teeth taken out because they had that much more space. Right? And so if you go to these indigenous cultures, and they're, they're not, they're not, you don't find them too much anymore because everyone's westernized. But in the, in the very remote areas, they, when they eat naturally and breastfeed their babies, they have perfect teeth, no cavities. 
Yeah, it's right. it's, it's kind such of such an interesting subject. Yeah, yeah. I, I, sorry to interrupt yeah, you. I, I'm familiar or relatively familiar with Western Price and yeah, oh, yeah. a lot of his visits to the indigenous cultures, and it's fascinating just looking through some of the photos. For anyone listening, if you just type in Western Price teeth mm. or dentistry or whatever, it's yeah, yeah. so interesting just seeing exactly what you're speaking about. These indigenous mm. tribes with the wide faces, no cavities, straight teeth. And then just seeing that transition from yep. when they move from an ind indigenous traditional culture into mm -hmm. a more uh, civilized in terms of the food that we eat, the way that we live, and just right. seeing the struggles that they start to have with the same issues that we do. It was, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see. Yeah. It was actually mentioned by a, a Civil War era uh, lawyer painter. I'm, the, the name escapes me right now, but it's called, he wrote a book called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. <laughs> and he painted... Um, Native American uh, faces, the ones that uh, were ate naturally in the native land, off the land, and the ones who ate modern Western diets, there's a big difference. The ones who ate um, modern diets had mouth breathing, mouth open, slack faces, much sicker, much more prone to infectious diseases. Um, actually, what another interesting phenomenon was actually our cutting tools. Um, there's a really fascinating book called uh, Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. And in one of her chapters is about the development of the knife and cutting tools. And what she documented through the work of Dr. C. Loring Grace, he's an anthropologist. This is like um, 100 years ago. And he looked at cultures like in England and China um, before they developed uh, cutting tools because, you know, metallurgy, that was kind of a new, new technology. But only the rich people could afford cutting tools and knives, right? So what happened was the aristocracy, the rich people in England, were the first people to get overbites. Because before that, everyone had edge-to-edge -edge bites like this. But then with cutting tools, because you cut it before you brought it to the table, you didn't have to chew and rip it. So what happened was you got this overbite. And, this, and this, so the peasants had, had um, straighter teeth <laughs> for a long period of time. Um, and then in China, the same thing happened, but about 100 years earlier, because they had that, again, that, that towel knife, that square knife that was chopping everything. So it was chopped before they, they brought it to the table. So only the rich people could have this. So the, the pieces you're saying, like back in the day, that you mm -hmm. might be served a decent, like a, a, an actual serving of steak, for example. Right. Yeah. And that would come to the table and you'd be forced just to, like you wouldn't just necessarily be off. cutting it. <laughs> yeah, you'd just be ripping it off. Yep. Okay. So it's, uh, it, it's really interesting to hear because, um, I mean, there is a correlation between poorer cultures and, I mean, there's plenty of exceptions to this rule, yeah. but I'm just mm -hmm. in regards to what it is that we're saying right now in terms of uh, dental health and in, mm -hmm. in terms of the foundational health elements. Once you've got your basic needs net, I guess, you've got your food, you've got your shelter, you've got relatively clean water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a greater level of foundational health in these places than what you see in you know, 95% of houses now. And uh, the interesting thing to me, and one thing that I've become so fascinated with uh, through conversations on here and as well as just my own education is seeing the power of marketing in my local grocery stores and just seeing how foods that really don't deserve to be mentioning any of their health benefits, like here in Australia, I'm not sure, I'm sure you've got the equivalent there. We call it Cocoa Pops, which is just essentially 95% <laughs> sugar. Um, I mean, they're advertised as high in protein or high in fiber. And it's mm -hmm. so interesting to look at the covers of a, a, a cereal like that and see how marketers are trying to target that towards parents to say, no, no, there is nutritional benefit in this for your kid. But Michael Pollan, uh, a, a journalist or an, a, an author that I'm a big fan of, speaks in regards to food saying, 
you know, the louder a particular food is about the health benefits on the cover of the packet, mm -hmm. there's a very good correlation to that being probably far worse for your health. You never really see an apple screaming about how beneficial it is to right. your health because it's just grown in nature. So what what is it do you think that's going on there? Is this just a lack of education, lack of awareness, uh, power of marketing, combination of all of the above? Because it, it blows my mind that people with such a fascination in health, uh, myself included for many mm -hmm. years and still sometimes gets caught in this rabbit hole of eating foods that I should know better than to be eating. The most recent one is the seed oils. I've just started going through foods. I'm like, oh, great. Now everything I eat has got <laughs> seed oil in it. <laughs> yeah. I think we're on the same page here. We read the same authors and books. Um, actually, there, there's a book called, and I just I read this such a long time ago, but I think it's called Confessions of a Dietitian or Nutritionist. I forget the author's name, but I'll, I'll send you the link later on. But she, she's, a, she's a dietitian, and she details the evolution of the whole new dietitian industry. And I won't get into too much detail, but it's a little bit, I would say controversial. Um, what she's saying is that is that um, the, the the general trend of recommendation to eat whole grain processed foods came from Kellogg, and yeah. Kellogg. It's, it's a very interesting story. He he was a um, a student of uh, Mary White, who was the one of the founders of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and they had very strict policies in terms of um, they, they didn't allow it to eat meat because they felt it was, it, was, it caused bad thoughts and, and sinful thoughts and lustful thoughts. So they were vegetarian. And I think she put Kellogg through medical school and then he went moved to Michigan and opened up the health sanatorium there. And he made up these um, cereal concoctions. They were health, relatively healthy. But his brother said, well, if you add sugar to it, then you can sell a lot more, but he didn't want to do it. So his brother took off and made a fortune with the Kellogg cereal company. <laughs> <laughs> interesting story, though. Yeah. That is but, an interesting yeah. story. But they, they, that group kind of started the whole nutritionist dietitian organization that still exists today, the mainstream organization that uh, determines health policy with the government. So that aspect of, of nutrition kind of, kind of, um, directed the direction of our country and the rest of the rest of the world to promote processed grains and then, and then they add sugar and so it's, it's kind of a weird <laughs> uncomfortable you know back to history that kind of it's, it's like you know, i guess that, that's why it happened for sure uh, i mean i'd be so keen to hear your thoughts on this i mm -hmm. know for, for years you were working as a ear nose and throat surgeon as you mentioned the the world of um whether it's doctors any expert any expert, I find it a really fascinating thing to dig into because obviously you don't have to look far to see that amongst the experts that the uh, the average man or woman is looking up to as their their source of reference for whatever mm -hmm. it is that they believe, you realize quite quickly that there's there's a lot of disagreements amongst yes. the experts about the right way to health, the wrong way to health, what mm -hmm. we should and shouldn't be doing. And often, particularly the last few years, I, I feel as though but here in Australia through COVID, obviously it was a, a, a highly, um, what do you say? Like it was a very emotional time and mm -hmm. we were all trying to do the best we could for, for our health. And it didn't matter what you thought about, uh, like in that instance, the, the vaccine or the best way to health. The experts were the ones who were, in many ways, if you were given an open platform, 
going back and forth. And people seem to just quote, I know I was, quote the experts that sided with whatever it was that they believe. Mm-hmm. And I say all that to, to, I guess, ask the question, like, what, what are your thoughts? Having, having come from that scene, it, it seems as though there's a lot of um, sort of regurgitated information. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a lot that uh, uh, for uh, the average GP who goes through university or college, there's, I, I can't remember, like the equivalent of maybe a handful of hours of conversation dedicated to the subject of nutrition or maybe exercise, which to anyone curious about health, it seems as though it should be the first point of call. And yet me who's fascinated by health, fitness, uh, you know, well-being, are told to listen to these particular people. Like, Has that been an issue of contention in your own walk? Because to, to read what you've had to say and see what you've had to say, it's obvious to me that you're, you're not amongst <laughs> that particular scene anymore. Your mind is far greater. Like it seems to be well above that, though would understand that better than everyone else. Like, had that ever been a point of contention or frustration in your own career before you pivoted? Um, you know, that, that's a long discussion. Um, there's so many different factors, but it, it's really surprising and shocking to me that pretty much every basic tenet in medicine that I've been taught is wrong. You know, <laughs> about nutrition, for example, about different kinds of healthy, what's healthy and what's not. Um, to kind of like what, you know, in the 1950s, the medical profession heavily promoted smoking because it was healthy for you, right? So we're kind of in that era right now with a lot of the health concepts. And the other issue is that it's probably the same in Australia that all the health agencies in the government are captured by industry. Yeah. I mean, it's a fact and they, they admit it too. Um, I think 90% of the FDA commissioners end up going to work for pharmaceutical companies afterwards. So it's like this revolving door. So I'm not surprised that this is mm. happening because it's happening. It's coming, it's top down. The, in, the industry controls the, the agenda. Yeah. I had a great conversation with uh, Dr. Ray Dorsey on here a little while ago about Parkinson's disease. With you. That was great. Oh, yeah. so I was, I was so inspired by that mm-hmm. conversation because I think people who have more to lose for the things they say from the people that you just referred to big industry, mm-hmm. I admire, first of all, the courage to, to speak out. But second of all, just the it seems as though it's coming from a place of honesty and genuine care that conversation uh with with dr ray but throughout that conversation exactly what you said was was true and you would know he he spoke about that in a lot of places in europe paraquat or um mm-hmm. glyphosate the key mm-hmm. ingredients in in things like roundup and and sort of uh, relative products are banned throughout so many countries yet here in australia heavily heavily used in america heavily used and so as you say you don't have to look too far to to realize that that big industry has a a pretty solid grip did you ever feel sort of stifled with what you're allowed to speak about when you were a practicing surgeon because of what we just mentioned well just to backtrack a little bit i had to quit medicine two years ago because i didn't want to take the vaccine i'm going back to practicing again pretty soon but yeah. it was a it was a really valuable learning experience for me to take some time off. It was like a very extended sabbatical for me. So I just really opened my eyes to a lot of different aspects of, of health and wellness. Um, but I, I think the reason why I'm going back is because I think I thought I could help a lot more people within medicine as opposed to being outside of it. Um, I think I think just people trust you more if you're working in the field, and 
and I can I can I think I can do it in a way that's that obviously I'm going to ruffle some feathers, but sure. my priority is to help my patients. And if I can kind of integrate what I've learned towards the on top of the traditional models, I can do a lot more to help my patients. Um, and so it's, it's, it's always going to be a challenge. Um, if you have these, these, these beliefs, mm. um, and there's, there's a lot of pressure from organizations, you know, the government and your professional organizations to kind of suppress these things. Um, but if, if you really believe in this, you have to fight for it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, a whole subject in its own. Obviously, the emotions of what you just said had calmed down. I remember uh, I, I was a teacher before um, I moved full-time into – I'm actually a running coach now, and I probably stepped prematurely into full-time work as a running coach about three or four years ago mm -hmm. uh, for the same reason that you just said you couldn't practice medicine was because uh, I was kind of just curious to see, okay, let's just see how COVID plays out, what happens with the vaccine before I take it. Long story short was, um, you know, you were just given an ultimatum. It was like, you take it now or you lose your job. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I, I lucky I had a supportive wife and we had some savings put aside where we had the, had the option to be able to say, okay, well, not right now. But yeah, a number of people who sort of saw the situation or mm -hmm. at least or probably felt the same, at least with a lot of respects to the vaccine as you and I, that I know had to, ha had to take it based on the fact that they wanted to keep their work. And yet, that was the first time I think the foundation of the question that I just asked you was born from. I'd never really questioned, especially medical authority before. I mm. always um, looked at people, uh, whether it was my local doctor or whether it was a surgeon, or it didn't matter. I, I looked at them with an element of respect based on what it was that they said. And then recently, I feel it sounds so wrong saying this, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. I really struggle to take a lot of what especially my local GPs, as good as, as good as people they are. Like I've mm -hmm. got nothing but positive things to say about them as people. But I think when you're so close to something, a lot of the time you fail to see that there's any kind of bias around the things that you actually believe. And that's one thing that I'd fallen into. I remember messaging a friend of mine who happens to be a GP to say, mate, I'm, I don't want to get this vaccine yet. Do you think you could write me an exemption? And he wrote back this email which i could see was clearly copy and pasted with words i knew he wouldn't have understood <laughs> just saying about the the only people that have given exemption to and i thought isn't that interesting like obviously there's a pressure on his shoulders to to take a particular stance and over the course of that couple of years i thought oh, i'd never really considered the fact that the people that i went to for comfort were also under some kind of pressure for the beliefs or the education that they sent out to people so mm -hmm. man i uh yeah I, I applaud your courage to be able to take that step I, I bet it wouldn't have been easy especially with i'm not sure what the pressure was like where where you are but um it was it was very quick over here to label anyone with a a, a question to be honest not even skepticism just questions as an anti-vaxxer or a bit of a nut job like was that a an, an experience before you left um i didn't feel very much of that no not i didn't feel very much antagonism they just respected my decision Great. and um yeah, I didn't get as much pushback as I expected. Hmm. I think yeah. if you if you're on the internet and you read up on these things, you see a lot more of it on the internet, very in extreme measures. But um, from my my friends, my local community, really wasn't an issue. Sure. 
Sure. I mean, we've taken a little bit of a pivot around this subject of health is obviously yeah, yeah. broad and deep. And, and yeah. one of the things that I, I constantly learn on this is there's so many directions you can, you can take the conversation of health. But mm-hmm. for the sake of uh, what it was that I was actually excited to speak to you about, let me redirect us towards the subject of sleep because it's something that I've got so many questions on. Um, and, and it's something that I, I heard Matthew Walker speak about mm-hmm. a number of years ago in regards to just the average amount of sleep that uh, I think the study was done on Americans from 1946 to today. It was saying that in 1946, I might be making up that date, so don't quote mm-hmm. me on it. The average American was sleeping eight hours a night. Fast forward to 2021, it was, uh, he said the, that same American or the average American is now operating on six to six and a half hours of sleep. And I mean, you don't need to be a genius to see mm-hmm. what's transpired, has transpired in the last 60 or 70 years Um that might be making this more of a uh, uh, more of a problem, but can you speak to that a little bit? What is it from from your perspective, besides obviously stress, um, obviously a, an obsession with work that is causing people just to feel uh, as though they can't justify the 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 uh, inactivity <laughs> of mm-hmm. of what sleep uh, sleep options? Sure. Well, you're right. There are a lot of different factors, but the most obvious one is technology with screens and the availability of it. In multiple different ways, right? Your phone, the TV, the computer. Um, we're so addicted to it. And these screens have blue light, which suppresses your melatonin sleep hormone. So that's a simple way of, of looking at it. But we have all these other distractions in life too. Um, and so it's hard to shut down your brain. It's just not, just not the, the screens itself, but just other factors in life um, that kind of puts this added burden on your brain and your thoughts and your emotions. So it's hard to shut down your brain even if you wanted to fall asleep. Mm. So it's, it's not surprising that we're sleeping six and a half, you know, seven to six and a half hours per night on average. And that's what's also adding to the burden of disease in general, because sleep deprivation affects every aspect of health and wellness, including uh, weight gain too. So there are correlation between lack of sleep and weight gain. So you can see how, and then you add the poor diet and nutrition, lack of exercise, lack of sunlight, because doctors are saying that you should stay out of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so um everything everything that doctors are telling you to do is just like going against natural just common sense um health concepts yeah have you listened much to or seen i'm not sure if you're on instagram but have you seen carnivore aurelius it's his uh, it's not satire but it's a it's a play on words carnivore aurelius i'll send you the link after he's a really mm-hmm. interesting guy that i think based on a number of things that you've quoted a number of things that you've said Mm-hmm. You'd, you'd really enjoy him. He, he looks at basic health stats and uh, how things have transpired over the last sort of 100, 200 years, mm-hmm. and he does it in quite a quirky way. But one thing he often makes fun of is this idea of us being so terrified of the sun. So <laughs> it, this is a really interesting topic because the, the fear of sun, especially here in Australia, it, it is mind-blowing to me uh, how terrified we are like there's no fear around so much of the processed food uh, lack of natural exercise uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, lack of natural uh, whatever i mean insert anything into the end of that natural but um there's certain things like sunlight which it just baffles me that it's so scary so this idea of skin cancer being a, a real danger now mm-hmm. obviously i no one should quote me on this i i really mm-hmm. have no idea what i'm talking about but just from an observer's perspective, it does seem as though the the sun has so many health benefits that mm-hmm. we seem to just look straight through in the in the name of health. 
Right. Uh, what's going on there from, from yeah. where well, you sit? It's, it's purely a marketing campaign by the medical associations uh, based on I, observational studies done decades ago, which at that point in time, it seemed like it was the right thing to do. But if, if you look at it from this perspective now, from today, it's probably not that accurate. Um, so if you look back at the, re the results of this campaign to keep people out of the sun, what's happened is, yes, there seems to have, been, to have been a little bit of a decline in skin cancer rates, which is true. That's the whole point of this campaign. But all the other cancer rates went up a little bit and all the other health conditions because vitamin D, for example, and there's other benefits like near-infrared radiation too, but to, from, for vitamin D alone, if the, the bare minimum level is 30, that's to prevent rickets. But if you go up to 60 and 80, this is where you get the benefits for pretty much every condition out there, diabetes, cancer, depression, and suicide, heart disease, autoimmune diseases. And most people are very deficient in vitamin D. They're in the 20, in the US is 27. And so, um, yeah, and the foods, and the foods are so unnutritious that we don't even get it from the food. You don't get it from the sun. And so this is one of the reasons why we have this conundrum right now with health problems and obesity right now. So you're not, when you're going outside, you're not stressed too much about the sun. Like I, no. I, there's very few times I spent a few hours here in Victoria at the moment in Australia, mm -hmm. we are, we're in summer and we've been lucky enough over the last few days. I'm just looking out my window now to see the sun mm -hmm. shining again, which is something I'm proud to see because it's been missing a little bit the last couple of months. But um, yesterday we're lucky enough to have the sun shining and I went out in the sun for a few hours. I was down at the beach. It wasn't overly intense, mm -hmm. but I came home and I actually said to my wife, I go, do you feel good? She goes, I feel awesome. And I said, well, so, so do I. And we actually had this conversation because uh -huh. there's never been a time where I've, I've gone out in the sun for a couple of hours, bar the chance that I've, I've maybe taken it too far and just obliterated myself and got way too burnt, where uh -huh. I come home and I go, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Uh -huh. And surely that's a telltale sign. It's like when I get back from exercise or get back from the gym, sure, it uh -huh. might have been hard workout. There might be some shakiness in my legs. I went for a run this morning. I was tired when I got back. But I'm sitting here now feeling as though there's an energy just radiating through me. And I go, yep. okay, well, that, that seems as though it was good. Yep. And often I find the things that are good for me leave me feeling that way after, like post-sauna, post-swim, post-beach, post-sun, whatever. <laughs> Your body seems to, to tell the score or keep the score yep. a little bit more. Um, yeah, sorry, you, you, you go. You bring up a good point that as long as you don't get sunburned, just you get as much sun exposure as possible. Um, and the other reason why you feel much better and have more energy is something I alluded to before, the near-infrared radiation. Are you familiar with that concept? No. Oh, fascinating concept. And I'm sure once you start looking at this, you're going to start going down this rabbit hole. So the sun has this full spectrum of radiation. And there's one frequency called near-infrared near, red, near infrared radiation. What happens is, and you get this mostly in the early morning hours, is that red-orange light in the late afternoon hours. So this radiation frequency, it actually activates the mitochondria in all your body cells to produce melatonin, which ends up being an antioxidant. Huh. To, so you create more ATP and energy and anti-cancer cells. Yeah. <laughs> That's and, so the sun, and, and the radiation penetrates about 10 centimeters through the bones, in the brain, in the gut. Jeez. All right. I'm going to have to... You've given me my. You've given me my homework. I'm going to yeah, have to look, take that yeah, away and uh, look up yeah, near radiation. You'll find troves of information, for sure.
So uh, the other thing is I, I often, after sun exposure, notice mm -hmm. I sleep better. And oh, yeah. so yesterday was a great example. But, mm -hmm. I mean, I have to have an asterisk next to that statement because I sleep deeply, but I'm not unfortunately that I have kids, but unfortunately my kids interrupt my sleep at the moment <laughs> just with the nature of the age that they're at. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, I went to bed last night, and for me, I mean, feel free to uh, uh, it, point me in the right direction here. I, I do a lot of stand-up comedy, so regularly I'm in bed later than I know I should be. Mm -hmm. But last night was a relatively early for me in the sense that I went to bed at around probably 10, 10.30, and I slept pretty continuously. It must have been until about 4 until my boy woke me up, mm -hmm. and I went in there. But there is a direct correlation between me being outside and me sleeping well, I'm sure. I've got no data to back it up apart from the fact that I've noticed a little bit of a trend. Like, is that something from, from where you sit, you notice, or is that something you recommend? Oh, it's, because it's, 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 Yeah, it's scientifically proven that the more time you spend in the sun, the deeper your sleep gets and more efficient it is. Interesting. Yeah. Man, this is a subject that I'm sure you've had so much pushback on because – so I'll, I'll go down to our, our local park or I'll mm -hmm. even send my kid to his local daycare. And um, in order for the kids to play outside, they're told they have to wear sunscreen unless they've got like a written note from their parents. So wow. I've, I've written that note to say like, don't stress, but I've also got, uh, and I don't know what your thoughts are on these. I think it's a zinc based sunscreen. So if you are going to put anything on the kid, I've, I've tried to find something that's a little more natural. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Feel free to educate me because I'm very yeah. open to being changed in my mind well, on that. Well, my wife is very into these um, healthy foods and, and, and um, ointments and things like that. And she's the one that did all the research for me for the sunscreens. And it's clear that some of the older traditional sunscreens had toxic um, yeah. chemicals. Uh, there are lots of good alternative options right now. Um, but... Honestly, I personally, I never wear sunscreen unless I'm like fishing for 10 hours a day on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the beach, I, I rarely wear sunscreen. Um, because you know how long it takes for you to sunburn, depending on how light your skin is, right? But the more you get tanned, the longer you can stay out in the sun. Yeah. And the more sun tolerant you become. Yeah. I've even had someone tell me anecdotally that he was very sun intolerant. And then once he got his vitamin D level up to a normal range, he could tell his son much better. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that principle applies to every other element of life, doesn't it? Like mm -hmm. I said that I went for a run this morning. Mm -hmm. And when I start running, I could only run 2K. And mm -hmm. then I started being able to run 3K, 4K, 5 The same was true in the gym. The same mm -hmm. seems to be true anywhere. The more you expose yourself to something, the yeah. more equipped you are to handle that. And I heard the exact same thing. And, and, and again, anecdotally, I, I feel as though that's been true for me. I, mm. I started probably three years ago. It's very rare that I wear sunscreen. I get a very peely mm. nose when mm. I go running sometimes. So I'll put a little mm. bit of there, yeah. purely aesthetic, just so I get home and my mm. wife doesn't have to kiss a bloke with just like a real peely nose. <laughs> so I can look a little or, bit Or you can wear a hat too, right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. That's another thing that I should do. But I think, uh, I mean, I'm pretty confident. So I'll say, I think it was Banana Boat. There was research done into the brand Banana Boat and their sunscreens to show that it was an actual carcinogen. Mm -hmm. And and yet it seems that the general public is more comfortable putting that on them, whether it's due to a lack of education or just an overhyped fear of the sun than what they are to apply anything that you've said. And again, this maybe falls under the category of what I was saying before in people trying to trust the the experts. But the experts here, we, we had a campaign 
online for quite a while promoted by our uh, Australian government saying there's nothing healthy about a tan. Like, make sure you... <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it seems to be the opposite. What about... Uh, so I'm 36 and I'm getting some pretty solid wrinkles around the side of my eyes. My wife, nice enough to call them smile lines, maybe a little bit of truth in that. A lot of people say it's because you've never really worn sunscreen, which is true. I've run for a long time. I'm constantly exposed to the sun. I didn't really ever focus on wearing sunscreen. Uh, what about that pure aesthetic? Like, is there any benefits in terms of how you look to, to wearing sunscreens or uh, is that a little myth as well? Well, I think it depends on how severely you get, you have sun damage. So sure. people who damage a skin all the time, let's say they're fishermen, yeah. they have really, you know, dark red and really scaly uh, faces, right? Deep, deeply red colored faces. And these are the people that will get cancer. Uh, but for most people living in modern societies, you're not going to get that much sun exposure. Um, now, actually, there's the, I did a blog post about this, um, about facial wrinkles and aging. So my theory is that because modern faces are not wide enough, because it's smaller, the skin doesn't get draped. It, it doesn't become taut as the faces get smaller. So now it's, it starts off more wrinkly and loose. But then as you get older, you start to see the wrinkles earlier. So people who have wider jaws have less wrinkles as they get older. Are you focused <laughs> on an education with the with the broadening of the jaws? That was another thing that uh, mm -hmm. James Nestor mentioned when yeah. I spoke to him. Yeah. Uh, was I, I think he I think he referred to a practice called mewing. Okay. I'm not overly familiar with it. I mean, okay. I've, I've practiced what I think it is a mm -hmm. couple of times, but I'd love to hear you speak yeah. about that just in terms of developing the face structure. Sure. Well, I was actually um, mentored by one of his students. Um, John Yu's student, uh, he's a dentist in LA. And he's the one that opened my eyes to this whole concept of airway dentistry. But mewing is, is a series of exercises to help strengthen your muscles of your jaws, lips, tongue, throat muscles. And because the way you use your mouth affects how your jaws grow. So that's why infants that breastfeed on a mother's nipple have better teeth as they grow up. Hmm. Um, all the, kind of, the kinds of foods that you eat. So hard foods, you really have to stimulate your jaws to have proper facial development. Now, when you use your muscles, it does help to some degree. And obviously, it works much better as you're, when you're younger. And it can also help as you get older, too. Uh, but my philosophy is you have to kind of complement these exercises with appliances, if necessary. And these are the, the various palatal expanders and different opinions on which is better. But combination of optimal nasal breathing. Um, proper muscular activity, including exercises, plus added appliances to kind of widen the jaws. Mm. So that's what's going to give you this, this expansion of your face. So my face went from my intermolar distance was 37 millimeters, and then I got my appliance. Now it's 42. Wow. And I felt a big difference. And so what are you doing? Like, Because mm. you, you mentioned before that you have a relatively – Slim face. I, I, I'm looking at myself now and I'm comparing it to your face. You do look mm -hmm. like relatively broad across the center of your face here, yeah. like from the cheekbone to cheekbone. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you're saying has been developed through these appliances and practices? Right. So I've, I've always had some of a narrow face and I've always had sleep problems myself. I, I could mm. fall asleep anytime, anywhere. <laughs> I took most of my lectures in college and medical school. <laughs> so this is a personal issue for me. And so I have what's called upper airway resistance syndrome. I probably, you probably have that too. This is where you stop breathing 
often these are subconscious subapnea obstructions that cause sleep fragmentation. So you can, you never feel like you're getting deep sleep. Hmm. And so I've gotten tested multiple times. I don't have sleep apnea. And if you got tested, you probably wouldn't have sleep apnea either. Now, as you get older, if you put on weight, you're probably going to have sleep apnea. But the problem is that our jaws are very narrow. And so the space, the airspace within the throat and behind the palate is very narrow. So any degree of relaxation caused by deep sleep will cause you to stop breathing partially and then you wake up from deep to light sleep. So you can never get into deep sleep. And so um, what I did was, it's not just the, the pelvic expansion, but my lifestyle factors, I'm really, really stringent about not eating late before bedtime, making sure my nose is clear before I go to bed, um, what I eat, my, controlling my stress levels, avoiding toxins, getting enough sunlight. Yeah. Um, I try to exercise as much outdoors as possible. Um, so yes, you have to exercise, but my point is exercise outdoors as much as possible. Yeah. Awesome. So you mentioned before you go to bed, you went through your, you, you go through a process of making sure your sinuses are clear or your nose is clear. Yeah. One thing that I notice, and I often wonder, I've done no research on this. My left nostril is very clear. I can I, usually, unless I've got a cold flu or whatever, I can breathe through my left nostril very clear. Mm-hmm. Very regularly, my, my right nostril feels as though it's completely blocked. Um, I, I think a lot of the things that you're saying, there's like a little uh, alarm in the back of my mind going, Tice, this is so relevant to you. Perhaps that's just the, the narrowness of my face. What is going on? Because I've, I've heard that before, that it's common for someone to have a more blocked nostril on one side than the other. Yes, absolutely. Now, anecdotally, what I find as an ENT surgeon is that most people have a deviated septum on the left side. So I'm looking at you so like this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's, let's do a quick experiment, if you don't mind. Yeah. Put your finger right on the side of your nostrils here, on your, press on your face, and lift up towards the eye, corner of your eyes this way. And then sniff in. Okay. Now, is it clearer on both sides? Yes. Okay. On the right side too? Yep. Okay. So just do the right side and, let, and just breathe in. Is it better? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So what happens is, this is a, it's a little bit contradictory, but if you have a left side of deviated septum, that means you're going to have more airflow on the right side, right? And because you have more airflow, your nostril can cave in much easier, like sucking through a flimsy straw. Huh. So one thing you can experiment with is to use breed right strips or any of these gadgets that you put on the inside to stiffen your nostrils. Because I can mm-hmm. tell you have a very narrow nose. Mm-hmm. And so as you breathe in, the nostrils cave in. And so um, a lot of people do well with the breathe right trips. That, that could be enough to just improve your sleep somewhat even more. Uh, so sure. this, that's the first phase. Yeah. I, I used to run with those and I noticed they yeah. were very beneficial. Like yeah. I, I actually have been thinking recently because I've only just recently got back into more serious running. Uh-huh. And that's one thing that uh, Patrick McEwen, the Oxygen yeah. Advantage, you're mm-hmm. familiar with him. I'm uh, with I had, him too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> I had him on my podcast a, a while ago and, and he had – uh, I've actually never used it before, but of me meaning to buy one, it's like the the inverse of a uh, breathe right strip where it goes yeah. up your nose and somehow right. pushes it out. So uh, in terms of that being, uh, is that more of a temporary solution or is that something that can actually develop that uh, that nose to strengthen out and broaden a, a little bit? Because I'd love uh, to tap know, into some of the appliances to yeah. actually give more of a long-lasting impact. Right. Well, unfortunately, these devices and gadgets only work when you use it. Sure. So there are procedures that you can do, and I did a lot of those to improve the nasal breathing on a permanent basis. That's a whole other discussion in itself. 
But these gadgets are pretty widely available. It's accessible to everybody. The problem is that you have to kind of find the one that works for you. Some people don't like the adhesive. Like for example, I don't know if you see my red mark here, but my, I pulled the breather right too quickly. <laughs> took, took away from the skin. <laughs> um, but there are these internal devices that, that you mentioned. There's probably five or six popular brands out there, various different contraptions and devices. So you have to kind of experiment with one to, to find one that works for you. Now with the internal devices, the problem is that sometimes they don't go up high enough because you have what's called the upper lateral cartilage and the lower lateral cartilage. So this crease is the junction between the upper cartilage and lower, lower cartilage. So you have to kind of go beyond the border of the junction between the upper and lower lateral to kind of keep your nostrils from caving in. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why you have to experiment. Whereas the breed rights kind of pull both sides, but it's not as strong. Sure. Yeah. So I've come to you and I've, I've asked the question. I say, all right, Dr. Park, I need your help. Um, my face is too skinny. <laughs> I'm struggling with sleep as a result. What are some practices that I need to take up to, first of all, address the shape of my face? Mm -hmm. Second of all, improve the quality of my sleep. Okay. Let's start with like the basic three to five uh, sleep hygiene principles and then we'll go to the nose. Perfect. So number one, no eating or snacking within three to four hours of bedtime. That is the most important principle. And people, some people who know, they, they know if they eat close to bedtime, they don't sleep as well. And this is why elderly people, they eat much earlier. They know they don't sleep at all if, if you eat much later. Yeah. And the reason is that assuming you have breathing issues just once in a while, the more stomach juice you have in your throat, the more it comes up. So the more stomach juice you have in your stomach, the more it comes up when you stop breathing causing inflammation here, which now sinus, sorry, the stomach juices can go up into your nose, sinuses, ears, and your lungs. They've actually found pepsin, a digestive enzyme in sinuses, ears, and lungs. Think about that, causing major inflammation, right? And then along with that, no alcohol because it causes your muscles to relax. Um, and then number two, optimize your nasal breathing. So getting into using breathe right trips, do yeah. whatever you can to control your allergies. Um, you can use a neti pot, nasal saline irrigation, allergy medications, get rid of, getting rid of pet dander. You know, there's a lot of, there's a long list of things you can do to uh, control you for allergies also. Uh, worst case scenario, if you still have problems breathing through your nose, see an allergist for more definitive control, mm -hmm. whether through medicine, medical, th medical therapy or, or even surgery. Um, I won't go into, I'm not going to get into surgery because that's kind of a longer discussion. But I've had very good success for people who could not benefit from medical, sorry, uh, conservative or medical therapy. So that is an option um, down the road. Sure. Um, and then sleep position. Make sure you don't sleep on your back. And I, I'm willing to bet you probably sleep on your side, right? I do. Or stomach. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Most modern people can't sleep on their backs anymore because of the airway narrowing. Because on your back is when everything falls back through the, the gravity. And so you stop breathing more often. And then what also happens with a lot of people who have these breathing problems, whether or not you have sleep apnea, is that they wake up to go to the bathroom at night. It's a very common problem, even amongst young people. What happens is when you stop breathing, you stretch your heart. And the heart thinks that there's too much blood coming in. So it makes a hormone called atrial natriuretic peptide, which goes to your kidneys to make you pee more than usual, to get rid of the volume. So most people, when they, when they get up once a night, it's around 3 a.m.-ish, plus or minus half an hour to go to the bathroom. And then if it's more severe, more frequent, it's about 90 minutes apart. 
So that, that's one of the signs of a sleep breathing problem. And it's not due to a bladder problem or a prostate problem for most people. Hmm. Okay, so if you have nighttime urination, get that checked out. But most of the time, you have to make sure it's not sleep apnea that's causing it, not something else. Yeah, okay. sure. All right, and then no screens within two to three hours of bedtime. Okay. Nothing. Yeah. Um, now, if you have to work or do homework, you can use the screen filters on the devices to cut out all the blue light. And these are pretty commonly recommended you know, it's concepts that everyone knows about, but most people don't apply it. Even I, I break my own rules once in a while. <laughs> um, and then now in terms of length of hours of sleep, everyone has different sleep needs. And so the eight hour rule, that's more, more traditional, but what they've shown is that the, the optimal rate of sleep duration, the optimal duration of sleep is about seven and a half hours. If you go up, 15 minutes on each side, you can actually see a difference in, in, in diseases on both sides. Isn't but that's so this wild. is an yeah. epidemic average for everybody, but everyone has different needs. Like I, I get by on seven hours. Um, some people need eight, some people need nine, but it really depends on how efficient your sleep is. Actually, one great running example, many years ago, I was a very active runner uh, with my running club and we had some very good top um, ultra marathon elite runners. And as I was talking with him, as, as we were doing our long runs, it was, the conversation would always end up talking about sleep because they found out I was a sleep doctor. And they would tell me, they would tell me that I, my, my sleep is terrible. And the only thing that makes me happy is, is by running all the time. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what, so the, the running um, is the thing that gives them energy or is the running the thing that made them tired enough to actually sleep? That too. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They feel alive when they're running and they get better sleep when they run. For sure. Yeah. I'm really interested in this idea of the appliances as well. Okay, like what right, appli so what appli I think I've seen some Joe Rogan clips of him yeah. chewing on some rubber ball. Um, yeah. So that's in line with uh, what's called malfunctional therapy. We exercise your mouth and your jaws and your lips. And there's, there's different variations of this with different names. But as a big umbrella concept, anything to exercise your muscles of of chewing your tongue, your lips, your, even your facial muscles and opening your mouth, that helps to develop and tone the jaws. And it does grow the jaws a little bit, but it's not, it's not going to be a traditionally, not going to be a very wide amount, but it does help. Yeah. Now, when you get to appliances, there's lots of different appliances. And this is where the, there's, a, there's a schism between traditional dentistry and the more progressive dentists, the airway-centric dentists. Historically, the dentists have said that in adults, that the palatal suture line has fused, so you can't grow it anymore. Uh, whereas in kids, you can still do it. That's why they give a lot of palatal expanders for kids. But these adult dentists have been doing these appliance expanders for decades with really good results, and I'm, I'm one of these patients. Um, so these are slow expanders, and there's different names, different variations. So you'll see names like the alpha appliance, um, DNA, homeoblock, um, um, bioblock. There's all these names out there, Vivos. Uh, I think they all have value. And the problem is that no one has done a study comparing one to the other, so you can't say which is better. Sure. But I think what's more important is the expertise and the skill of the practitioner and not the device itself. Yeah. So what is that? Like it's something that's actually on the inside of your mouth and is gradually expanding it, or is it something that you're, you're yeah. putting from time to time? Um, it, it's, it's there all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you wear it at night. Sometimes you have, you have a daytime appliance and nighttime appliance and others are just there permanently. 
and you adjust the screw every once in a while. So it's like a power door expander. Hmm. Uh, the one I use is just a spring that gets adjusted every couple of weeks. And how long did you have that in for? Uh, probably about a year, year and a half. Re- yeah, and it stays, yours was in there full time? Yep. And it's just across the roof of your mouth? Well, it's, it's like little wires, almost like braces wires, but most oh. of it's behind the teeth. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I didn't even know that was. Intrusive. It's called an ALF. Um, but that, I mean, that's, that's one of many different options, but depends on who you have access to. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, so obviously you've, you've got these as an option if you wanted to do something a bit more mm-hmm. long-term with longer-lasting right. impacts. We've obviously spoken about a number of things that you can do as of today mm-hmm. that's going to start to make a difference. Right. Besides I- screen time, besides mm-hmm. food, what are some of the other things that people are doing that's just really spoiling their chance of a good night's sleep? Okay. Um, well, you also have toxins. Yeah. Right? And that's a whole other discussion in itself from your personal care products, uh, your furniture, your house, air quality. Uh, so this is more of a high-level general concept of anything that, that's irritating to your nose and to your body in general. Um, and so these are the, the, these have the phthalates, the, the um, pesticides, the herbicides, uh, fungicides, um, the... Um, the, all of the endocrine disruptors that most of these endocrine disruptors promote or mimic estrogen. So you can imagine with, with women, if you have too much estrogen, it suppresses progesterone. And there's another concept with, especially with women, progesterone is actually a hormone that increases muscle tone in the throat, helps you to breathe better. So during, when a woman has her periods, after she ovulates, progesterone goes up and drops just before her periods. So when progesterone goes down before periods, the tongue gets more relaxed, so she doesn't sleep as well. Yeah. So imagine what happens if you don't sleep that well a few days before your periods. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then, then during um, menopause, the same thing. Progesterone drops very slowly. Yeah. So that's why women's sleep quality goes down during menopause. So um, and the same with men too. If you have too much estrogen, it suppresses suppresses testosterone, and also the toxins can lower testosterone. So there's a lot of different variables and factors and you have to kind of go through it one by one. It, it can be daunting, but just take it step by step and don't think that you can take care of it all at once. You have to, it's a, it's a lifelong habit. It takes months or years. And I've been doing this for 10 years with my wife. And has your wife experienced some uh, pretty impressive results as well? Right. She had many, many, many more health problems than I did. Huh. Um, and so we went through, she went through a gluten sensitivity issue and now she's gluten, she eats gluten free. Um, but she's very sensitive to everything. Um, uh, but with the regimen that we have, she's pretty much under control. I mean, she still has her bouts every once in a while, but much better than before. Yeah. So it's, it's a personal journey for the both of us. Um, and th- th- that's why it's important for us to spread the message, um, through venues like this and also with her, what, what she does as a life coach. Um, it's, it's, um, it's really important not to just share it with the people on, on the internet, but with your family and friends and colleagues too. For sure. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I've mentioned a couple of times that I've got young kids. Are, are there any things that I can do to give them a head start besides mm-hmm. giving them some good solid food to eat uh, in terms of solid in, in density as well as solid in nutrition okay. um, to, to get them more effectively sleeping or, or more prepared sure. to just have good health going forward? Well, I mentioned one before is, um, Breastfeed as much as long as, as long as possible. Yeah. 
I know it can be challenging for some women, but just do what we can as much as possible. Um, start solid foods earlier. Yeah. yeah. Avoid pacifiers or thumb sucking. That causes major damage to the jaws. Um, now, around age three to four or five, that's when kids start to have large adenos and tonsils or nasal congestion. Um, and so around age four, that's when you can actually get intervention by a dentist, especially that alpha appliance that you can actually do in kids. Um, and you get pretty good results that way. Sure. So that you don't need braces later on. That's, yeah, okay. And is that something that should be looked at as um, a, a last resort or is that something that we should be looking at as like there's a very good chance you're going to need this so you may as well just take the front foot and, and, and get it yeah. sorted? The lather. Uh, it's better to mm. be prophylactic. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. well worth the investment. For sure. No, it's so interesting. I mean, these are conversations that, I mean, I've, I've read so many of your blogs, I've heard so many of the conversations that you've had, and I understand there's so many different directions you can take a chat like this. So maybe we uh, we need to do a round two at some stage because there's, there's so many things I'm sure we could uh, go down the rabbit hole of. But yeah. is, is there anything that um, you'd like to leave with the audience as uh, some practical takeaways of, you know, okay, so let's boil everything we've said down into three or four things Here's where you need to start today. Yeah. Um, nasal breathing. If you can't breathe through your nose, everything else goes downhill. Even for, for, for runners and athletes, you have to breathe through your nose, right? Do you breathe through your nose? I, I you do. When I'm jogging, I can. When I'm uh -huh. working hard, I struggle. Okay. I, um, during some of my lectures, I show a picture of the New York City Marathon winners, typically from Africa. They are just effortlessly running down, crossing the finish line with the mouth closed. <laughs> yeah. ten, 10 paces back, you have the American runners with the mouth closed. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I used to run with a, uh, a Sudanese athlete. His name was Dewey Yoa, very good mm -hmm. athlete. And I remember one day, we were a, he was a few years younger than me, but for a while we were around the same level. And I remember the Melbourne Marathon 10K, uh, we were about seven kilometers into this race. Mm -hmm. And I was starting to work really hard and I looked over at him and I always knew, um, as I mentioned, like he, he Sudanese got very, very broad mm -hmm. through the nose and I looked at him and it was, it was like, it was a joke. He was just doing exactly what you just mm -hmm. mentioned, breathing through his nose. And I, I tell you, psychologically, it was the wrong move for me to look at him because I realized just how comfortable <laughs> he was. Well, that's a good reason. Um, anatomically, <laughs> um, your nose makes a gas called nitric oxide. You may have heard about this. Nitric oxide, first of all, is antibacterial, antifungal, antibacterial. So it kills germs in your nose and your lungs. Number two, when you breathe it into your lungs, it increases oxygen absorption by 10 to 20%. So think about that. Hmm. Number two, if you open your mouth, and it's time to get, you, you think that you can get more air into your mouth, but actually it narrows the space beyond your tongue. So it, it, you, you, have, you, you breathe less when you open your mouth. Yeah, I learned that from breath as well. Uh -huh. I remember, yeah. I remember just thinking uh, as a running coach, as a runner, I was thinking, okay, obviously you just want to get as much oxygen into your lungs as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, sure, like maybe you like it seems as though anatomically more air is going through your mouth. But mm -hmm. then I remember James Nestor just breaking it down and saying, yeah, but exactly what you just said. You, you've got to take into consideration like the temperature of the air, the filtration of mm -hmm. the nose, the other elements that's delivering like a higher quality oxygen to your mm -hmm. lungs to be absorbed rather than just like how right. much is in there. <laughs> like mm -hmm. how much is in there? It just sounds like a classic uh, modern yep. civilization person yep. of, you know, 
what is better. Like surely more is better, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, one little tip quick for runners or any kind of athlete, if you're at, at the, near the finish line and you really have to go all out and you're sucking wind, one thing that you can do is to either tilt your head up that opens up the airway or just move your jaw forward. Hmm. So, and these are the, this, this mimics that the, um, the mandibular advancement devices that we use for storing sleep apnea, just by moving your jaw forward like this. Yeah. So you open up your airway and you can tell a difference when you do that. Yeah. It's so good. That's so helpful. Mm-hmm. Dr. Park, I've told you an hour, so I don't want to leave you here longer than you need to be if you've got other things to do. But if you've got anything that you wanted to, anything else you wanted to leave us on, feel free to do that um, because I could talk to you all day, but I know that might cause some marriage issues. So <laughs> I don't want to do that to you. No, yeah, I'm fine. I really enjoy our, our conversation today. Awesome. Well, you're always welcome back. Thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed that chat. It's a very interesting conversation to me. I know our audience is going to love it. I'm going to link your book. I'm going to link your blog, your website, everything in the show notes. For everyone who's interested, make sure you check that out. But hey, how about we leave it there? Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you.